Amen. The whole earth is full of his glory. Wow. It is good to be with you this morning. I know Bill gave you a brief overview of me. Well, well, there's one thing he didn't tell you. I am a preacher's kid. And so from way back, I have attended church usually for two reasons. One, because it was expected of me. And two, to see my friends. Anybody else? I mean, seriously, if we're being real. We're being real, all right? Well, one of my earliest memories is sitting in the back of the church with my good friend, and we were having a great time whispering and giggling until my dad stopped right in the middle of his sermon and said, Kathy, be quiet. I have not talked during a sermon since until today. (laughs) We're looking this morning at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and I invite you to open your Bibles to this incredibly full passage. If you do not own a Bible, please accept one as our gift to you from the pew rack right in front of you. James, the brother of Jesus opens chapter chapter 4, speaking to the Jewish Christians of the early church with admonitions that remind me of an associate pastor I worked with years ago who told the story of a church he was pastoring in Arizona. And this church, the members were engaged in a worship war. In a worship war. I mean, worship has changed dramatically over the past 50 years, and this church was fighting that change with passion. In fact, they were so passionate that they took hymnals and began throwing them at each other across the center aisle. Oh my goodness, that would hurt. That would hurt. And you know, I can see it in your reactions. It's kind of funny, but it's awfully sad. It's awfully sad. That church wasn't the first and certainly won't be the last to have a war between its members. Satan loves to get a hold of our self-centered humanness, even in the church, and cause trouble. Thankfully, Beach Point is in an exciting time of peace and unity, but we would be wise to learn from the book of James how to avoid battles in the future, not only in our church, but also in our daily lives and in our families. James 4.1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? How many of you would prefer peace to war? Yeah, of course. I mean, we would like to think that peace is our natural state, but unfortunately, it's war that comes naturally. Just look at the sibling rivalry that occurs in most homes or holiday family gatherings and the great effort it takes just to keep the peace. Why is this? Well, in the words of Dr. Henry Brandt, the heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. The heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 states, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. James is saying, and here's the big idea, the battles between us come from the battles within us. It's true. We all think we want peace, but what we really want is for everyone to agree with us, right? It's true. It's true. Destructive desires within us lead to conflicts between us. In the church, we must carefully and prayerfully consider whether the issue at stake is one for which God would have us take a stand or simply a preference that is not worth the battle. In our daily lives and in our families, we must be careful not to fight over every little thing. Because remember, a bulldog can undoubtedly win the battle with a skunk, but will it be worth it in the end? No. No, not so much. Verse 2 of James 4 goes on to describe the reasons for our quarrels and our fighting. He says, you want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. See, James is speaking here of the desire for worldly possessions, power, popularity. He's teaching us how to live God-centered lives in the real world where we and everyone around us are bombarded with a supposed need to have what everyone else seems to have, including all the latest and greatest technology, the nicest home, and the perfect Facebook selfie, right? Seriously, how many selfies do people have to take before posting the best one? Hundreds, hundreds. Do not fall into the trap of comparing yourself to their momentary posting of perfection because it is not reality. It's not reality. The end of verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. Now wait. This verse is not saying it's time to start asking for the newest iPhone. No. No, (laughs) let's be careful to understand this verse is not talking about getting every prayer answered just the way we would want. Kind of like the little girl who prayed, Lord, please let Boston be the capital of Vermont because that's what I put on my test. No, no, God is not going to answer every prayer just because we ask for it. He knows what is right. He knows what is best. Sometimes we just want the quick and the easy, but God knows what's right and best. We should be like Judy Brower, who in her book, Simple Devotion, said, Okay, God, whatever you choose to give me is what I want. I will be okay no matter how hard it is because I have you. This is not about me anyway. It's all about you, God, and you will be enough to see me through. You see, Judy has learned the secret of praying for God's will in everything because God's will 
is right and best. Even in the worst of times, there is hope. There is hope when we realize that God is in control and he will redeem all that he has allowed. Our confidence in his goodness and sovereignty reminds us that he will bring good even out of the worst of situations as we love and trust in him. An unknown soldier wrote, I asked God for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might learn to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given weakness that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for and everything I hoped for. And in spite of myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Ah. You see, sometimes our prayer requests are not part of God's plan. We can't see the big picture that is visible to our all-knowing Father. God, in his grace, cannot answer all of the requests that we make in just the way that we want. For our ultimate good, sometimes he must say no. And that's hard. That's hard. While we see only the knots and the stray threads under the embroidery, he sees the beautifully completed pattern on the top. Some of our prayers may seem unanswered, but God indeed always, always answers. In the end, when we see the tapestry of our lives, the vast personal plan by which God has been working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight, then we will see that everyone who asked received, and to those who sought, it was found, and to those who knocked, it was opened, Matthew 7, 7 through 11. So when James says in, in verses 2 and 3, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He is referring here not to Christ-centered prayers, but to self-selfish requests. In fact, he u- uses the word hedon for pleasures, and from that we get the English word hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. When all we really want is for God to confirm our desires and the direction that we want to go, we get in all kinds of trouble and desperately lost. God knows the motive behind our selfish prayers, even if sometimes we don't, and often, graciously 
He declines our selfish requests. James goes on in verses 4 and 5 to warn us about the dangers of friendship with the world. He writes, oh dear, listen to this. You got it? You got it open? You adulterous people. He said it, I didn't. I'm just saying. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? 1 John chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 tell us the definition and the cure of worldliness. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Forever. You see, we've all been caught up by this world in our lusts and materialism and egotism at one time or another. And it is these conflicts within us that cause conflicts with others and with God. C.S. Lewis wrote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. James does get pretty blunt in verse 4. And remember, he's talking here to Christians like you and me. And he calls us adulterers. You see, any time we flirt with the world, we cheat on God. Any time we flirt with the world, we cheat on God. The Living Bible translates verse 4, you are like an unfaithful wife who loves her husband's enemies. Can you imagine the bride of Christ making eyes at her at other suitors? Salvation is like getting married. The bride and groom promise to forsake all others and keep me only unto thee for as long as we both shall live. And we make the same promise to Christ, our bridegroom, when we commit our lives to him and are baptized. From that time on, we must learn to stop intensely envying and desiring the things of this world. He who lives within us is a jealous God who does not want us to share our love and loyalty with anyone or anything else. Again, quoting C.S. Lewis, aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. When our focus is on getting whatever it is that makes us happy at the moment, we will ultimately lose everything. But when our gaze 
is fixed on Christ. We are promised eternal joy with earth thrown in. We must set our hearts today on the eternal faith, hope, and love that is found in God through Jesus Christ. You know, this is an incredibly convicting and heavy passage. And I am so grateful to come to verse 6, where Christ comes to our rescue in spite of our adulterous ways. And he tells us, but he gives us more grace, more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Aren't you grateful for God's grace? Oh my goodness. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And yet, he loves us, forgives us our sin, and gives us his grace. On the other hand, when we're prideful, And ahead of God, putting ourselves ahead of God at our soul's center of gravity, it's like a washing machine on spin cycle. When all the clothes get clumped on one side and it begins to shake and rock violently. How many of you have seen that happen? Yes, I have. Same way for us. We get shaken to pieces when our walk with God is out of balance. Far better to recognize our pride and humbly ask for God's forgiveness and grace. His grace is greater than our sin, and he is eager to give it. You see, your sin is never greater, never greater than the grace and forgiveness that God is ready to give when we humbly repent. James goes on in verse 7 to explain how to get rid of a prideful heart and live a life of humility. He writes, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay. What comes first in this verse? Anybody? Submit to God. Submit to God. He comes first, submitting to God and his will and plan, obeying him and putting our hope and our trust in his loving purpose for our lives and the lives of those we love is our first line of defense. If we try to fight the battles on our own, we will lose. We will lose. The devil is only defeated by the power of Almighty God. We do not have the strength to resist his temptations on our own. Fighting him is like bringing a water gun to a nuclear war. Our strength is weak. But this verse promises that when we submit ourselves to God and then resist in the midst of temptation and then resist the devil, he will flee. Now, how many of us would just as soon ignore Satan altogether and hope that he'll just leave us alone? I remember a girl up at Thousand Pines summer camp years ago 
who told me she did not believe that Satan existed. And I said to her, I wish you were right. But the evidence of his destruction is all around us. We see it every day on the evening news, and she had to agree. People tend to make one of two mistakes about Satan. Either they ignore him altogether, or they give him too much credit and too much attention. We must be aware that we face a deceptive enemy who wants us to live in defeat. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, Satan's veiled and cruel attempts to discourage us are part of his goal to lead us into self-centered and world-centered attitudes and activities. It is these attitudes and unconfessed sin that keep us from being used by the Holy Spirit to bring others to Christ, and that plays right into the devil's schemes Another reason why our enemy tempts the children of God is because he knows our sin grieves the heart of our Heavenly Father. Satan has no power to actually harm Almighty God, so he attacks his children. In the same way that parents care deeply for their children and do not want to see them hurt or drawn into sin. Even so, our Heavenly Father loves and cares for the welfare of His children. Satan knows this and he uses it against us and in turn against our Heavenly Father. Ephesians 4.30 tells us that sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God, which is why Sin should grieve us as well. Now the good news is, Satan's power is limited. He is a coward who flees from us when we resist him. And thankfully, we do not have to face him on our own. In fact, we're foolish if we even try. Our security must be in the absolute and final authority of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen? The absolute and final authority of Jesus Christ. Because Christ triumphed over Satan and his demonic hosts when he died and rose again. Rick Warren has said, If the devil gives you problems about your past, you remind him of his future. Amen? Amen. Verse 8 of James 4 tells us the next step in submitting to God. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. That's a promise. The God of the universe draws near 
to all who draw near to him. That's a place of hope. That's a place of peace, of quiet, and of rest. The question is, how can we draw near to Almighty God? Well, James suggests two practical ways that you can begin, we can begin today. First, he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Your hands represent your outward lifestyle and actions and habits. They must be cleansed and kept away from the contaminating pleasures of this world. Stay physically away from tempting situations. Will Rogers said, we should live in such a way that we would not be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. Yeah, yeah. Secondly, purify your hearts, you double-minded. This deals with our inner motives. We must rid our hearts of loving the wrong things and giving our allegiance to the wrong people. In everything we say and do and see and do, we must seek to honor God, starting with our hands minds, and hearts. Let's not try to justify our sin like the men in the story of an old miser. (laughs) On his deathbed, he called in his doctor, his lawyer, and his minister. Gentlemen, he said, I am going to disprove the myth that you cannot take it with you. Under my mattress, there are three envelopes, each containing $30,000. I want you each to take one now, And then throw it in my grave just before they shovel in the dirt. So, at the funeral, each threw his envelope into the grave. And as they left the cemetery, the minister said, I don't feel right about this. I have something I need to confess. I needed $10,000 very badly for our church building program. So... I kept 10,000 and only threw in 20,000. Then the, the doctor confessed. I needed money for the new building, then the new wing at the hospital, so I'm sorry to say, I kept 20,000 and only threw in 10,000. The lawyer replied, Why? I am shocked and ashamed at you both. How could you withhold that money? Why? I threw in a personal check for the entire amount. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some of you laughed a little later than others, but yeah, you got it. You got it. Just like the minister and the doctor, don't we sometimes try to justify our sinful actions? And we try to convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay. Because, hey, everybody else is doing it. And what I'm doing really isn't so bad compared to them. Well, when the Holy Spirit convicts us and reveals to us our ongoing sin, it should cause us, as in verse 9, to grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What we need 
is an old-fashioned mourner's bench, a place where we get down on our knees and weep and wail for our sin, true and deep confession and repentance and turning away from sinful habits are good for both the heart and the soul. It's not a shameful thing to confess your sins before holy God, but rather, as Brennan Manning writes, underlying every cry of the grateful sinner is an unshaken trust in the person and promise of Jesus. Raw honesty with Jesus about our doubts and anxieties our lusts and our laziness, our shabby prayer life and stale religiosity, our mixed motives and divided hearts is the risk we take in the certainty of being acceptable and accepted. It is the full and mature expression of invincible trust. What a relief. What a relief it is to confess everything knowing that we are still loved and accepted. Hear me. You are loved. You are accepted by almighty, holy God. Wow. Wow. Hmm. We have the final step in the process of turning from sin and submitting to God in verse 10. It's both a command and a promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The only way up is down. Down on our knees. Only when we bow before the Lord will the Lord then lift us up. Thomas A. Kempis wrote, Always take the lowest place and the highest will be given to you. For high structures require a firm foundation. The greatest in the judgment of God are the least in their own opinion. The more worthy they are, the more humility will be seen in them. Author Brennan Manning writes, Humble men and women do not have a low opinion of themselves. They have no opinion of themselves because they so rarely think about themselves. Neither overly sensitive to criticism nor inflated by praise, they recognize their brokenness, acknowledge their gifts, and refuse to take themselves seriously. Oh, that this definition could describe each one of us, including me. Confession and humility enabled David to exclaim in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, what happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sin and God has cleared their record. That's a happiness that does not belong to proud law keepers, but to confessed law breakers like you and me. We are accepted and loved for all eternity. And I would encourage you to come humbly before the Father each day 
with palms raised and uplifted, releasing to him, confessing to him whatever sin it is he has brought to your attention, and then receiving from him his grace, his love, and his forgiveness. You belong to him for all eternity. Now, in this process of confession and determining to turn away from sinful habits, you may realize the need for help in this regard. And Beach Point stands ready to walk with you through Celebrate Recovery and Stephen's Ministers, uh, life groups, and uh, even praying and working one-on-one with a counselor. So I would welcome you at the end of this service to come and pray with our prayer warriors right here at the front. And then check beachpoint.com and look under care ministry for more ways that we can walk with you on this journey. So now, I invite you silently to close your eyes, raise your upturned palms, And silently confess whatever sin it is that has been brought to your attention. And then receive from the Father his grace, his love, and his forgiveness.